Hi, everybody. This is Joanne with Read Science, and I'm here with my co-host, uh, Jeff Schomeyer. And for a third time, we are welcoming Mario Livio. And for your seventh book, right? Yes. Yeah. So, and the, your, the book today on my phone is ah. Galileo and the Science Deniers. So, and we're going to let Jeff do the official introduction. Yeah, you're giving everything away, Joanne. Oh, so <laughs> you have more to say. It's <laughs> our very special guest on this episode is Mario Livio. Mario is an astrophysicist. He worked in that capacity until 2015 with the Hubble Space Telescope. I learned just this morning that Mario was born in Romania uh, with what would sound like a long time ago, but probably doesn't seem much like a long time ago. I also read that he is, quote, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra's official science advisor, which I thought sounded like a pretty sweet gig, really, that, that I'd enjoy. He also writes popular science books, at least seven of them so far. I realized I became acquainted with Mario when I read his book, The Golden Ratio, about 15 years ago. Uh, it took us a while to talk together. We know him here at Read Science because we've previously talked twice about his books, Brilliant Blunders, and Why, What Makes Us Curious. The first time we talked was only our fourth episode, way, way back in 2013. He's back with us for his unprecedented third visit to talk about his new book, Galileo and the Science Deniers. Deniers. We'll be sending you your frequent interlocutor card later. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, welcome back, Mario. It's a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure to be here again. <laughs> Joanne. Yeah, I suppose I should have a first question. Um, I have many questions. So um, interesting. As you mentioned in the book, lots of books have been written about Galileo. True. So let's start with the obvious question. Why did you want to write a book about Galileo? Right. It's, it's, it's a good question. And in fact, you know, one that I thought about myself. Yeah. Well, you know, clearly I've always been fascinated by Galileo. Uh, I'm an astrophysicist. Uh, you know, I worked as an astrophysicist uh, much of my life. Uh, he's definitely the founder of modern astronomy and astrophysics. So there is a connection there. I also realized that uh, most, if not all, the book written about Galileo, biographies in particular, were written mostly by science historians mm -hmm. um, and not by uh, sort of active research astronomers or astrophysicists. So I thought that, you know, I, I can perhaps provide something new there in terms of, you know, putting his science in the context of what we know today and how those things develop. So that was one motivation. Uh, a second motivation had to do with the fact that uh, many of those superb uh, biographies of him, uh, because they have been written by, uh, uh, you know, science historians, they have been written as scholarly books, yeah. which mm -hmm. are extremely interesting for somebody like myself but, you know, the average, even educated reader, there are too many details there, uh, you know, and, and, and they are not that accessible. Uh, and I decided to write uh, an accurate, yet not too detailed or too long um, book about him. So this was the second reason. And the third reason 
which uh, only became more and more <laughs> relevant as uh, as I was working. And in fact, after I finished the book, was the business of science denial, yeah. uh, with which we have to uh, fight still today, but against which he fought, you know, 400 years ago, and is perhaps even best known for that. Mm -hmm. So I thought that the book would be re very relevant for today, and it only has become more so uh, even after I finished the book. Well, it's I interesting you said the word fought, because I think of this when, mm -hmm. um, when you know, I was a kid and we're in, uh, we're in school and they, they were like, Galileo fought the church. But reading your book, I wasn't exactly convinced mm -hmm. that he fought the church. <laughs> you, you're right. He didn't fight the church. Uh, his, his fight is very often being portrayed as mm -hmm. if it was a clash between science and religion. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. And he never saw it as such. Right. He was a religious person. I mean, all people at his time were religious people. You know, he was a Catholic like everybody else. Uh, his fight was a fight between science and literal interpretations of scripture, mm -hmm. which he thought was the wrong thing to do. And his fight was as much to defend scripture, you know, as, as anything else, because he didn't want the Catholic Church to make the mistake of too literally interpreting the text when he argued that the Bible was never thought to be a science book mm -hmm. and therefore should not be taken as such. So, yeah, so he didn't fight the church in that sense. He, he, he fought uh, for intellectual freedom, if you like. There was a, a very interesting, it came up again uh, in the late 19th century when Dar, after Darwin had published uh, um, the yeah, the species, origin of species. And uh, there was some perceived conflict that I think was more than he thought. But wasn't it Leo XIII who wrote his famous statement that truth cannot contradict truth? And so there has to be a way to resolve these two things we take to be true. And that seemed very much, very much almost in the foreground when you were talking about the conversations between Galileo and his inquisitors that they. They recognized that these things could could be both true, and they had to resolve the conflict somehow. Right. Well, Galileo himself said, "Scripture can never err." He, yeah. You know, he said that. Uh, so basically, he said, "So if there is an apparent conflict, mm -hmm. it means that we have just didn't understand exactly." You know, because yeah. he argued, "Look, the Bible was written." for the common people to understand it. And it was written for our salvation and not, you know, to teach us science. He pointed out, look, even the planets are not named there. That's true. I think there was, trying to remember my thought, I think there was one more reason that I thought you wrote this book. And one thing that I, I liked about it very much is that when you write your books, you write the scholarly, the historical, the scientific, but you also tell us what you're thinking sometimes. Uh, yes, and I so know. I feel, you know, and it's not that it's entirely personal and it's all about you, but you're there always talking with us about these things. And I valued 
the fact that you presented these ideas, you looked at these conflicts, you discussed them, and then you told us what you thought about them too, so that we knew what you were thinking, which I found a, a very interesting and a valuable contribution. Do you think I'm wrong? Do you, no. you notice that, don't you? No, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, very often in the book I say, you know, uh, some historians say that this and this, but, uh, you know, I think that that and that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That nature, yes, yes. Yeah, you know, I, you, you don't have to, I, I mean, you know, those people are, are, like I say, scholarly and very knowledgeable, but, uh, you know, much of that is, at the end, also personal opinions of what, yeah. what people thought. And, uh, you know, I am entitled to my opinion as much as any anybody mm -hmm. else, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, I made, I made a note at, when I'd finished reading the book, uh, and one of the uh, questions that almost always seems to come up in a discussion like this that we usually avoid asking is, gosh, why did you write this book and, and why do you write books? And my feeling after reading this one was that you write books because you think about these things, you have ideas about them, and you feel like these ideas are worth sharing, so you tell us about them. Uh, that is absolutely true. So, and I... And I liked that. I, I I rejoiced in that. I thought it was very nice because, you know, we're we're scientists. We've been taught so often or told so often not to inject our personality or use the first person pronoun in anything that we write uh, scientifically. And so it's rather nice to have good science, good history, where you feel at least uh, like you can tell us what you're thinking, too, because those thoughts are also interesting because you've got thoughts worth sharing. Um, I'd actually like to, to talk about um, science denial, because when you were, uh, or, or when Galileo was dealing with science denial, well, science did, wasn't called science um, at that time, and it wasn't really what we think of it today. And so it's very interesting. So to, to sort of reframe it, looking at the way science is today and the way science deniers work today. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that for our, sure. uh, for our yeah. audience. So indeed, so, you know, there were science deniers there, then and there are science deniers now, but their motivations are definitely not the same, at yes. least not only, you know, there, there are different types of motivations. In, in Galileo's time, as, as I pointed out, I mean, the deniers, Mostly, you know, it had to do with literal interpretations of scripture and with opinions that were forged during, you know, hundreds and thousands of years uh, since, you know, Aristotle uh, and, and Ptolemy. So basically what happened is that in this particular case, the geocentric system in which the, all the planets and the sun revolved around the earth, um, were in that model of Ptolemy and Aristotle. And uh, that model has been adopted by the Catholic Church as its orthodoxy mm -hmm. uh, because it fit in many ways. I mean, it's not, uh, you, you know, many hundreds of years later, they were not so concerned with whether or not this fits the observations exactly or not, but this fit with the general concept that humans were at the center of creation, mm. and therefore clearly 
earth had to be at the center of you know the world as they would because that was the whole world that mm -hmm. they knew at the time now when you look at uh and, and galileo came and said no wait a second maybe it looks like that but it's not quite like that and don't take what is written in the bible uh, literally um and, and he made this point based on on a number of things like i i mentioned that the Bible was not written as a science book. Uh, mm -hmm. The way we to, to find facts is by experiments, observations, and reasoning. Um, and uh, he has this famous phrase which say that he did not believe that the same God that has given us <laughs> our senses and reason and intelligence wanted us to abandon their use. So, uh, you know, so he said, we should really look ourselves and see, you know, and see what the observations and the experiments are telling us. Now, when I look at science denial today, uh, this type of religiosity uh, is very often not the motive for this, even though sometimes it is. I mean, you know, there still are creationists uh, that want to teach, uh, you know, side by side in science classes, mm -hmm. Uh, creationist theories, they, they are now sometimes called by more fanciful names like intelligent design, mm -hmm. but it's really the same thing, um, uh, side by side with Darwinian evolution. I mean, you know, you mentioned Darwin before. So, so that thing still exists, you know, literal interpretation of the Bible. There is a, there was, by the way, I, I mentioned this, there was a Gallup poll uh, that uh, found that 30 some percent of Americans still think that humans were formed mm -hmm. in their current state yeah. less than 10,000 years ago. Yes. Um, so, you know, so clearly those do derive from certain religiosity. But when you talk about things such as climate change, let's say, where, you know, it's one of the more rampant science denial that we are encountering today, uh, the motives there are not, they don't come from religion. It's usual, usually some form of uh, political conservatism. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes they involve in that uh, what they think are economical reasons and things of that nature. So the motivation may be different, but mm -hmm. the effect at the end is somewhat similar. Yes, I mean, in, in the case of COVID-19, for example, for example, the initial response to COVID-19 was basically to ignore the science right mm -hmm. you know phrases such as uh, just a flu we now have a 15 cases and soon it's going to be zero you yeah. know phrases yeah. uh, said at the highest places in the land yes I, i'm saying this with no political motivation yes i'm i'm just stating the fact yes that this was said and the reasons there had to do with political reasons, we are in a year of elections, you know, all kinds of things of that nature. So it's not religiosity, but the effect is the same. You ignore the science. Well, this was, this was a useful discussion, too, because we all know stories about uh, uh, people who would come to see Galileo and he wanted to demonstrate, perhaps, and they refused to look through his telescope. And I think we look at that, tend to look at that with 21st century eyes now and think of it as a sort of plausible deniability. But your discussion was was much more interesting in, in the context. It's like the reason some people would not look through the telescope had nothing to do with not looking, 
but more to do with uh, fearing that they might be tricked uh, and, and various reactions that that uh, are not the way we would think about that these days. It casts a different light. Right. I mean, you see, Galileo introduced here something that did not exist until then, mm -hmm. in the sense that you could only find evidence directly through your senses, was the mm -hmm. feeling until then. And now he introduced a device, which, by the way, I should mention, he did not invent the telescope. Mm -hmm. he, right. he just perfected it and constructed his own telescopes, but the telescope was invented in the Netherlands. Uh, he suddenly introduced this new device and claimed that what he sees through it is real and mm -hmm. represents a reality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people at some level, maybe even justifiably in the very early stages, said, but how do I know that what you see there is not some artifact of this device, you know, of this magic that you are bringing here, and so on. And it was only after, you know, people like the Jesuit astronomers from the Collegio Romano in Rome mm -hmm. um, confirmed his observations that, you know, people started to say, okay, now we have to understand what we're seeing, but but certainly what we see is there. Um, so that took a while uh, to, to actually convince people of that. And and that was exceedingly novel because, like you said, this is the the first time ever that that someone came along and said, uh, "With this device, I see something that's real, but you can't see it unless you use this device." Right, right. So it's sort of yeah. something that enhances your senses. Yes, and that that sounds suspicious, surely, the first time it happens. Right. Uh, and there are lots of firsts for Galileo, right, that you, uh, that you mentioned. I, I made the short list of things that you, he revolutionized that you said. Astronomy and astrophysics, laws of motion and mechanics, relation between man and reality, and experimental science. Not, not bad for... For and, and I would <laughs> say the introduction of mathematics as the language yes. of, of right. the universe. Yes, right. which is, I don't know, barely recognizable, perhaps, if we look at it from, from this viewpoint, but but he did do it, and he was quantifying it, and this the whole idea of how, maybe we should talk a bit about how he almost certainly did not drop those things off the leaning tower. <laughs> I was going to say, why don't we talk about that? <laughs> but there is a great lesson behind that of how he discovered how he could do diluting gravity. Right. Is, is not an obvious thing to do. That was a major shift in, I, in order to discover the things that lie behind that story of the, of the Pisa tower. Yeah. It's it, actually this is the there are a few things about Galileo. You, you see, he has many discoveries, and many of them, you know, he did with a telescope. So the you know, greatness was more in understanding what he saw, mm -hmm. uh, and and deriving you know numerical facts from that. But there are some things where, to be honest, you know, I just cannot imagine how he thought of that. Yeah. And, and one of them is this thing about, you see, he wanted to study free fall. Right. Study free fall, you have to drop objects to see them fall. <laughs> okay. And, and he had this intuition somehow, which you cannot understand how he had that, that if not for the air resistance, 
bodies of different weight would fall at the same rate and, you know, would reach the ground together. But he couldn't experiment to, to actually show that. He had an intuition that that's how it should be. Now, to actually drop bodies and measure the time that they fall was very difficult at yeah, his time. Back, back, back there were then, no yeah. time measuring devices at the time. Yeah. So he had this incredible idea that to use inclined planes and drop, you know, bodies down inclined planes because he said, look, free fall is an extreme case of an inclined plane when I put the inclined plane vertical <laughs> to the ground, you know, but I can put it at a very, very small angle to the ground and then it would fall much more slowly. It would roll much more slowly. And that allows me to measure time more accurately. So this was an incredible idea on his part. Now I, I read that now and I think, well, how did he just overlook that thing? That's like when it's doing this, it's rolling down and not falling. But <laughs> hey, it, it works. I've done it in the lab. Uh, we can just look past that. <laughs> Yeah, and, well, you know, and in principle, you can also, you know, if you make an inclined, mm -hmm. very, very uh, shiny kind of, uh, you yeah. actually can actually think slide down, you know. Then, you yes, know. <laughs> that's my uh, introductory physics teacher always uh, said that we would buy those demonstration tools from the ideal pulley company where uh, things have no mass and uh, no friction. <laughs> But you know, <laughs> let me say something which is actually for students who study physics in high school. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, you see, I don't know if that is still done today, but when I was uh, in high school, we did problems of inclined planes to death. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we solved problems with inclined planes. And I, even then as a student, I thought, but what, I mean, how come I do so much with inclined planes where, you know, in everyday life, I don't encounter so many. <laughs> well, yeah, I can run up hill or drive a car downhill, you know, and things, but not so many problems, you know, on inclined planes. But once, you know, you read about Galileo, you suddenly understand what a revolution in thinking this inclined plane represented. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and you you suddenly understand how, you know, this led to such discoveries. You, even, you know, he's finding the trajectory of projectiles. Yes. Done, yes. done using also an inclined plane. Basically, he rolled an object down an inclined plane onto an horizontal table right. and then shot into the air. Yeah. And he then looked at, you know, the trajectory of that object once it's in the air. And he was the first to discover that the trajectory of projectiles is a parabola. You know, it's a mathematical shape that was known yeah. since antiquity. Well, and so now, I this is the opening for me to recall that I wanted to start by showing a picture, a painting by uh, Artemisia Gentileschi from 1620, I think was the right date, of Judith slaying Holofernes, the second version she did of that which appeared in your book. Uh, and I was going to ask you why, what it had to do with Galileo. And 
it's uh, it's a, the connection is the cultural significance of this discovery. So I'm going to ask you to describe that anyway. People can look up the painting and see what we're talking about. Yes. Let me, if you allow me, I will preface that with a, 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 a small introduction, which is Galileo mm -hmm. sure. was a Renaissance person. Well, first of all, he lived during late Renaissance. Yes. So clearly he was. <laughs> but he was a Renaissance person in many other ways, too. Uh, in the sense that, for example, he knew poetry uh, yeah. very well. Uh, he gave two lectures about Dante's Inferno when he was 24. Yeah. Uh, he uh, loved this poet Ariosto, and he wrote a whole essay comparing him to Tasso, another poet. He could recite entire pieces from these things. And he also studied drawing himself. Mm. He was a very accomplished draftsman. He was, uh, he was a musician. Uh, he played the lute, you know, together with his father, who was a musician. Now, he had painter friends. For example, Cigoli was a famous painter, mm -hmm. a personal friend of Galileo. And Artemisia Gentileschi, who was, uh, she she's very, very remarkable because, you know, in the Renaissance, we mostly talk about men painters. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, women were not given the opportunity to paint much. Artemisia is an incredible painter. <laughs> I, I even hate to call her a woman painter because she is yeah, yeah. simply one of the greatest painters of Renaissance Italy, yeah. uh, you know, uh, by himself, uh, be it man or woman. Yeah. Uh, great, great painter. Um, and she indeed painted uh, a, a famous painting, which was Judith uh, beheading Holofernes. Mm -hmm. And she did one version of that, and then she did a second one. And she was a friend of Galileo and corresponded with him on several occasions. And story has it, you know, we don't have this as documented evidence, mm -hmm. but that Galileo informed her about <laughs> the projectiles, you know, the trajectory of projectiles that this is a parabola and so in her second version she painted the blood squirting out of Lopernis's uh, neck <laughs> shooting up as a, as a parabola uh, the, the blood shooting like this uh, so uh, you know clearly she had from him uh, heard from Galileo what was the trajectory of that thing uh, on another occasion by the way she con she complained to him uh, that a certain duke that bought a painting from her apparently didn't appreciate the painting because he paid her too little. Uh, well, that's, that's a shame. There was a, one more cultural uh, artifact that I, I enjoyed, but... I should say a certain marquee, not a duke. Yeah, okay. <laughs> marquee, yeah. What I was annoyed at is that I have, have been uh, more than once in the Pauline Chapel at Santa Maria Maggiore. And I stupidly did not look closely enough at the portrayal of Mary in the dome that you described. And now I, I'll look when I go back, but it irritates me. Uh, uh, but this is another, uh, another example of Galileo's influence on culture, right? That right. there's yeah, the I, famous I, depiction I, of, there we go, ah. of Mary, Queen of Heaven, uh, yeah. This is a, a common portrayal. Move it up just a little bit. Yeah. Standing on the moon. 
That's yes. right. And that the moon she's standing on in this particular painting is taken from Galileo's observations. Yeah, the moon of Galileo. You see, yeah. until that time, usually people painted the moon as a sort of pristine because there was this distinction between terrestrial things which yes. were corrupt and could die and this and that and celestial or heavenly things yeah. which had to be pristine and you know perfect no blemishes and not so and then you know one of Galileo's observations of course showed that the moon had all kinds of features and in mm -hmm. fact he correctly interpreted them by understanding light and shadow that he was seeing mountains and craters and things that the surface was rugged. And that's how he drew it. You know, he yeah. had these fantastic, yeah. you know, drawings, uh, these washed drawings of this. And Chigoli was a friend of Galileo and painted this, this uh, Pauline chapel in, the, in, in Santa Maria Maggiore, uh, painted the moon as he saw it through, through Galileo. So uh, yes, it, it is a very important. Uh, I'm I'm anxious to see that now when I'm back in Rome sometime. But. <laughs> you know, uh, speaking of photos, you actually uh, just stepping aside from your book just for a moment. You just published uh, an opinion piece at um, Scientific American that says, "Did um, did Galileo truly say? And yet it moves a modern detective story." And of course, this has to do with a painting or a couple of paintings actually. Right. So. Um, that and is I'll put correct. that link below the video so people can see it. That is correct. So uh, I, I was very intrigued by this business of, uh, you know, this is probably Galileo's most famous motto and yet it moves. Mm -hmm. And the legend originally had it that you know, after being on his knees before the Inquisition and forced to, you know, read this abjuration where he says he curses and detests everything that basically almost everything he believed in, mm -hmm. uh, which is really one of the most shameful events in our intellectual history, uh, that when he got up from that, he sort of murmured, um, and yet it moves about the earth, you know, that it still moves around the sun. Now, uh, everybody always knew that he didn't say that before the Inquisition. I mean, this would just have been uh, <laughs> way too dangerous on his part. Mm -hmm. um, but the question was, you know, did he say it at all? Uh, or was that something that was put in his mouth by later generations? Mm -hmm. And uh, Favaro, who is the person responsible for almost everything we know about Galileo, because he wrote this multi-volume, incredible biography of Galileo and his work. Mm -hmm. He published this at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, did a lot of research trying to find out the origins of that saying. Mm -hmm. And um, in print, the first time this appeared was in the middle of the 18th century. Uh, hmm. Galileo, to remind you, died in the middle of the 17th century. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in the middle of the 18th century, there was a book written by an Italian, but who lived in Rome and public, uh, sorry, in London, 
and published it in London. Uh, and that's where the story is. Now, the story, uh, is, even though it's written only in, you know, it's basically like a one paragraph, uh, contains many mistakes. Uh, the story, you know, he says that uh, after he was tortured, Galileo was actually never tortured, mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, but then he says that he said this, you know, that he said, e pur si muove, which means, and yet it moves. Uh, and uh, so the first time in print, more than a hundred years after Galileo's death. So well, it's hard to take that as real evidence, you know, that he yeah. said it. Uh, Sure. Uh, but then, uh, in 1911, uh, the same Favaro, who wrote all the works of Galileo, uh, received a letter from a Belgian person. Uh, and the Belgian person said that he owns a painting, which was painted in 1643 or 45, which is um, very, <laughs> like a couple of years before Galileo died. Um, uh, uh, sorry, after uh, after Galileo died, a couple of years after Galileo died, in, he died in 1642, and um, and uh, that on that painting, which shows Galileo in prison, uh, there are those words, the Pulsi Nuove. So um, a number of science historians uh, took that to mean that you know if there is an origin that is only a couple of years after Galileo's death, uh, then that probably means that the story is true, because, uh, that he said it, uh, not to the Inquisition, but, you know, said it to somebody. Um, there was also a story that the frame of that painting uh, contained uh, something that alluded that it belonged to a certain Piccolomini. Uh, and that Piccolomini was taken to be the brother of the Archbishop of Siena, in mm -hmm. whose house Galileo stayed <laughs> the, first, the first six months of his house arrest after his trial. Um, that Piccolomini was a, a military commander, and he was in Spain, then moved to Flanders, then moved to Vienna, and so that the person who owned the painting invented the whole story where uh, that commander uh, somehow commissioned the painting from a very famous Spanish painter, actually, Bartolomé Esteban Murillo mm -hmm. uh, in Madrid, and then took the painting with him to Belgium where that person lived, the person who now owned the painting. But that it, you know, it went through some more hands and so on. I, I, I won't, won't, won't make the story too long. Um, so this was the story. But what I discovered to my amazement was that the last time that painting was seen was in 1912. Uh, and nobody actually even knew where that painting is anymore, even though at the time, it was seen by other people, and actually there were some newspaper articles about it. So uh, this often happens to me when I write books. <laughs> I suddenly become obsessed with something maybe even is not absolutely essential to the story, but you know, I find it important. So I, I spent 
about a year trying to research the origin of this and to find to find somehow something about that painting now i i i let you read the whole thing but i i'll just tell you that i found i refound the painting um and uh but i also found that there is another painting which is essentially identical and which was painted in the middle of the 19th century <laughs> and uh, that painting truly contains that motto uh, and uh, my conclusion which is not a hundred percent but uh, you know uh, you will judge from reading the article how convincing it is my conclusion <laughs> is that the original painting was actually painted in the middle of the 19th century mm -hmm. uh, and that the other one is probably a copy um, and so we are back, I think, to a situation where the first mention of a motto is uh, in the middle of the 18th century, uh, more than 100 years after uh, Galileo's death. So and we don't know that he said it for sure. No, we don't know that we, that we said it for sure. But I do want to emphasize, look, he may or may not have truly used those words. Yeah. But there is no question that that is what he thought. Yes. No sure. question. And... And the meaning of that phrase is so true for today. You know, the meaning of that phrase, and yet it moved, it, it, it says, you know, irrespective of what you think, mm -hmm. these are the facts. Science, right. science works whether you believe in it or not is a current, current version of that. Right. <coughs> and exactly. you, you gave Gal Galileo credit for this, that one of his, his big motivations you felt was um, what the importance of, of being a, a supporter of Copernicanism, right. regardless, right. because he was convinced that it was true. Yes. And, and, you know, he couldn't, I mean, let's face it, he couldn't prove that the earth was actually moving. He, 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 he brought lots of evidence for Copernicanism. Lots, you know, the phases of Venus. And, and he actually had in his possession a proof from the trajectories of sunspots on the yes. sun. I've never seen that before. That was but he, a fabulous thing. Yeah, but he didn't know enough to really prove that from that. He 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 claimed that that also shows, but he yeah. really didn't know enough to, to prove that. But, but uh, yeah, but uh, look, uh, he basically completely discredited the geocentric model. Right. He couldn't completely discredit some sort of a hybrid model uh, that astronomer Tycho Brahe yeah. suggested, which was that all the other planets revolve around the sun, but the sun itself revolves around <laughs> the earth. Uh, now, Galileo didn't like that. And, you know, I as a scientist would not have liked that. Either. <laughs> it, it has too many moving parts, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I uh, so I'm not surprised that Galileo didn't like that. But what is true that all the evidence he had could not fully disprove this particular one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I have another essay question I'd like I'd like to hear about for a little <laughs> bit, which was one of the revolutionary points being uh, 
redefining redefining uh, uh, people's relationship with reality which is linked in my mind with the idea that we think of Galileo as the as the uh, father of experimental science um, so if you would if you would tell me what you think about how he redefined our relationship with reality and the the importance of that and how that came about and admittedly that's most of the book but, <laughs> yeah. well you, you know the point I made earlier and I will make again I mean Galileo established that there is only one way to determine truths about reality and mm -hmm. that is to do experiments to do observations and then to reason based on the results of those experiments and observations now initially he probably started by not doing real experiments but thought experiments mm -hmm. thought experiments is you know when you sort of try to think through what would be the outcome if i did an experiment like this um to give you an example, you see, he claimed that um, when you drop a heavy object in the light object, uh, they fall at the same rate. Mm -hmm. Galileo claimed that, no, the heavy object falls much faster than the light object. Because, you know, on Earth, that's very often your experience because of yeah. the air, air persistence, you know, and all that. But Galileo argued like the, with this thought experiment. Imagine that I have two objects, one heavy and one light, and I now tie them together, and I drop that. <laughs> and I compare that to how the heavy object would have fallen. So I could say the following. Well, on one hand, the light object supposedly falls slower than the heavy object. <laughs> so when I tie them together, this would fall slower than the heavy object because the light object would sort of slow it down, right? <laughs> On the other hand, the tied together object is heavier than the heavy object and therefore it would fall faster yeah. than the heavy object. So <laughs> you get into a contradiction. So, and you understand that from a thought experiment, not you know, one that you actually do. Uh, so he started with thought experiments, but then he started doing real experiments. And the experiments, you know, as we pointed out, were with inclined planes, with dropping objects. He did drop objects, by the way, too. Uh, just probably not from the Leaning Tower of Pisa, but yeah, <laughs> drop objects. Um, so he did all, all of that. And then, of course, uh, in astronomy, he did the observations. He had this telescope. Uh, as I said, telescopes existed before him, but people looked at things here on the ground or at ships or, you know, at sea and things like that. He actually turned that telescope into the heavens and tried to see what it will tell him then, there. And, yeah, it told him. I At the beginning of the book, and a lot of that we've discussed already is clear, but the central question that you were looking at was why why do we still talk about Galileo? Yes, well, I, I hope I made <laughs> it clear. Yes. <laughs> Not only was he a giant of science, I mean, you know, if, if you ask any working scientist, you know, to, to name kind of the three greatest scientists of all time, 
then the names that immediately come to mind are Galileo, Newton, Einstein. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can add many other great scientists, you know, sure. and, and people like this and so on. But these are the first three names that come to mind, you know, Galileo, Newton, Einstein. Uh, so, uh, so that's, of course, one reason that we still talk about him. Second is his fight for intellectual freedom, mm -hmm. yeah. which is so, was so important in his time and is so important today. I mean, we should never take intellectual freedom for granted. Uh, so, you know, that's the second reason. And the third is the business of science denial, which unfortunately you would have thought that 400 years later, we will not have to fight those, those right. fights anymore. I mean, for heaven's sake, even two popes now agreed that <laughs> Leo was right. That's people, right. That's right. Uh, you know, but unfortunately, we still encounter science denial. Yeah. So, and I think another thing that comes through uh, very strongly in your book is um, that science and the arts don't have to be separate. Yes. I was just yeah. thinking about that. Yeah. Do we, yeah. do we want to talk about C.P. Snow and and his two uh, two yeah. domains, whatever? Yeah. I'm not a big fan of that, but <laughs> well, it should all flow together really well. He was so. Lamenting something. C.P. Snow was lamenting something. Mm -hmm. He was lamenting what he saw as a schism between the humanities. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what he saw. Uh, because he saw that uh, intellectuals from the humanities were excluding scientists uh, and mocking them for not knowing, you know, literature and the arts, while at the same time don't, not recognizing uh, that they themselves knew very little about the sciences. Now, mm -hmm. Galileo, as I pointed out, was a Renaissance person. Mm -hmm. He knew the sciences and he knew much about the humanities. And to him, this distinction would have been unconscionable, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that thing, you know, maybe it's, it's less pronounced today, but some would argue that it is as pronounced as it was when C.P. Snow in the 1950s uh, noticed it. Uh, that, uh, you know, you talk about... Uh, everybody needing to re read Shakespeare or see a play mm -hmm. by Shakespeare and so on. And somehow it is not made equally obvious that everyone should know that there are such things as laws of nature and mm -hmm. uh, you know, what they imply. Uh, this is not to say that everybody needs to be a scientist. Absolutely mm -hmm. not. Uh, but people need to respect science, uh, believe in science and follow the science. Um, and, and appreciate what science is doing. Um, and, you know, the, the current COVID-19 uh, pandemic is, is a perfect example of that, that we should follow the science and, and you know, we should appreciate what, what scientists are doing here. So, um, yeah, so uh, this is why I devoted the chat yeah. to this. And I, I have a, I, I wrote, wrote down something, a quotation from the book. You said that the key point that Galileo made was that scientific knowledge, when presented adequately, is not beyond the grasp of non-scientists. And since he regarded it as an essential part of human culture, literally, everybody should strive to acquire it. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely true. And 
there's with the I don't know current generation, the zeitgeist, whatever, but there seems to be uh, in the last I don't know decade or two some more movement of of making an explicit connection between sciences and the arts, so that we, you know, the the uh, careful of us today talk about STEAM rather than STEM careers and right. studies and things, and uh, trying I think maybe succeeding some in acknowledging these, uh, the value of this cross-fertilization, right? Yes, I, I, I absolutely believe so. I mean, I think, in particular, I think that it, it feeds into creativity. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you had an episode with me when we, where I talked about curiosity. Yeah. Right. Uh, when you are curious, uh, it means you know you you try to get interested in many things, and that gives you the opportunity, uh, you know, to take ideas from one domain, apply mm -hmm. them in another, and and this is really uh, at some level at the at the bottom of creativity, right? I mean, you know, yep. using using ideas from one place and 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 applying them in in new places unexpected places even yeah, right. well so, you had a you had a nice quotation from martha nussbaum i've got that, that too <laughs> yeah education needs to impact impart skills of critical thinking and it needs to cultivate the imagination mm -hmm. right and and i'm sorry i was just going to add my comments like some people may still believe that science doesn't call on the imagination that it's somehow mechanical it's and not true. yeah i know we know that <laughs> listen th thinking to do free fall on inclined planes yeah yeah a lot of imagination <laughs> and and formulating the law of inertia mm. that if no forces act on something then it would go on moving with the speed it has on a straight line required a lot of imagination because yes. you cannot do an experiment like that Right. <laughs> he had to imagine that that is the situation. And and that is why we still talk about Galileo. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, um, it's funny. I knew this. I knew, I know very well this um, fallacy, um, but I didn't know it was called the Galileo gambit. Yeah. That people think, well, because people uh, persecute me and say I'm wrong, therefore I'm right. Yes. And I was like, I didn't know it had a word. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was a fallacy. I get plenty of emails, as surely you do, that, you know, here, let me tell you about my theory of the world and how the moon came to be or something. And I'm like, huh, okay. <laughs> yes, yes. The logic of that thing is completely false. I mean, yes. you know, it's because, you know, because I'm going against everybody else, that makes me right because Galileo is right. No, Galileo was right because he was right. Yes. He was right. Yeah. And yeah, I knew it had to do with Galileo, but I didn't know it had an actual name. And I was like, wow. Yeah. yeah. You are against everybody else usually means that you are wrong. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes in rare cases, you may be right, but it certainly doesn't make you right. Yes. Well, and right. there, there's a, a more modern version, too, that I often hear something related to, well, Einstein was bad at math and his teachers thought he was stupid, too. <laughs> Which, you know, it's like if you grow up getting bad grades in math and things, then you're obviously correct with this latest dumb idea you've come up with. Uh, but, and by the way, I, Einstein 
was not really bad enough. No, that's no, what I it's, heard. That's just the thing. And he, he was not. I mean, he was I'm not. sure that Mr. Snow also knew that Einstein played the violin. How could he think that scientists? How could people think that scientists didn't have anything to do with the arts? Uh, well, you know, Einstein, yes, indeed, was a was a good, fairly accomplished violin player. Uh, as I said, Galileo was a, a really accomplished mm -hmm. lute player. Uh, his brother was was a, a lute virtuoso, uh, and his father was a musician and a musical a, a musicologist, <laughs> a, a theorist of music. Mm -hmm. Sometimes played lute with his father. Uh, so yes, uh, but but like I said, he knew how to draw. I mean, you look at his drawings of of the moon; it, they are incredible. I mean, yeah. artistic. Where yeah, they are real real works of art. I'm looking at my notes going, oh, have I forgotten anything? Oh, there's there's so much. But, I know. <laughs> uh, well, I, we I, people to read the book, I mean. Yes, that's, that's true. That's right. Uh, I take now, after having done, I think we've done now 76 of these episodes, and we've read a lot of books, and uh, my operational thing is like the more pages of notes I have, the more engaged I am with the book, and... I've got eight pages of notes, which is uh, maybe a record, Mario. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Very, very good. So, well, Jeff, do you have anything else that you want to pull up from your eight pages of notes? No, there were just so many things, but so but but it is good, and I think I've already touched on the things that I want. That you know, it's like why retell this story of Galileo because mm -hmm. it's still relevant because mm -hmm. he's important because we still talk about him and because Mario has thoughts about it that are worth hearing and I'm sure. I'm glad he shared them. Uh so the book is is uh fun and it's engaging. It's a personal discussion. It's yeah, it's like sitting here talking with you about it really. And uh I appreciate that. That's a that's a a voice that people find difficult I think to uh, capture. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. Oh. Yeah. We're we're very happy to have you here. Yeah, we're third, we're, third visit. We'll, write another book, and you're you're welcome yeah. back. Do you think you'll get another one in, or is it? Well, uh, well, you know, it uh, it takes me three to four years to to, to write a book. So, in uh, almost all my books were like that. So yeah. I have to live another three to four years. Yes, you'll do it. We will make it. And we, we've been here for three of them, so uh, I'm, I'm willing to hold on. Uh, so anyhow, but uh, certainly I will think about writing another book, but, uh, you know, we would have yeah. to. Usually, uh, usually as we get to the end, Joanne asks, so I guess I should ask, is there anything that we managed to avoid talking about that you'd really like to bring up or mention uh, as a last thought here for, for people? No, I, I think my my big thought from all of this, which I think, you know, sh hopefully shine through everything we we, we talked mm -hmm. about here, is believe in science mm -hmm. uh, yeah. you know, uh, and, and follow the science. It is so important, uh, you know, in the state that we currently are, mm -hmm. uh, and especially during this really horrible, horrible pandemic. I mean, this is mm -hmm. something that, you know... Uh, Definitely, I could have lived without. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and and the number of dead is just so horrifying. And you know, we're still at the beginning of May. Yeah. Right. I mean, we're yes. already 
hit the numbers predicted, you know, to be till August, you know, uh, originally. Uh, well, originally after mitigation, you know, and so yes. on. So, uh, yeah. th this, is, this is really horrible and uh, we should do everything we can, you know, to, to save as many lives as we can. And uh, we, we are great. I, like everybody else, you know, should be so grateful to all the healthcare professionals and everybody, you know, who provides us uh, the food, the mail, the this, the that, the, you know. It, it is incredible, but we should believe in the science. Right, right. The science is uh, pointing out this was coming, and yeah, it should have been a science-led effort all along. So yeah, I agree. But uh, but while you're inside, you might as well read Mario's book. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's very good. And uh, thank you so much for coming on again. And really, really glad to have read your book at this time. Thank you. All right. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for joining us with Mario and Jeff. And uh, hopefully, um, you know, we'll see Mario again soon. <laughs> right. Thank you. Thanks, Mario.